Hello, everybody. Andrew Gamison here with the Speaking for Him podcast. I'm so grateful that you have decided to take a few minutes to spend with us again this week. I just want to take a second here on the top of the show and just let you know that your feedback does matter a whole lot. You know, this podcasting thing can seem fairly solitary. It's just me uh, talking to myself in some ways, but it's so encouraging when I see the listen numbers go up or when I get a review or some other feedback from you guys talking about how you're encouraged by what I'm sharing. It really motivates me to continue on. So if you have something that you want to share about the podcast and how it has encouraged you, please uh, make use of the contact information that will roll at the end of the show and let me know how that has been helpful to you. And also continue to share with me your ideas for future podcasts. You know, we're at, we are at um, just over 450 episodes as of this week. And so we are cruising uh, ever so steadily toward that 500 mark. I get kind of excited every 100 podcasts. I know it's kind of funny for me to say because I actually get excited every single week when I have a chance to speak to you on this show, but especially for those 100 podcast plateaus, I just get very excited. And, you know, I've been here at home in my home studio for over a year now, and it's just been amazing how God has worked in my life and in the process of this podcast. So I just want to encourage you to continue to listen, continue to share with your friends and continue to give me your feedback. It truly does mean a lot. Well, we have a lot to cover uh, today on the show and our main topic for the show is continuing on our characteristics of the love of God. And I will be very excited to get into that with you in the next few minutes. But first I want to talk to you about what is going on. First of all, I want to say thank you for continuing to pray for Potter's House as we wrap up the school year. Uh, we have about a week and a half to go, and I'm very excited uh, to see that wrap up strong. And it seems like the kids are really enjoying their midterm activities. So I'm very excited and optimistic to see how that particular program will proceed. Uh, basically, what has happened is we decided to um, conclude our normal semester about two weeks earlier than normal and to use the final two weeks for underclassmen to learn some very specialized skills. Um, and so there's a variety of different disciplines, uh, including but not limited to um, psychology and athletic leadership, and I think... Um, there's a woodworking track. So there's just several different things where kids can be focused on something that they truly enjoy and are interested in for the duration of the final two weeks of school, which I think is very exciting. And I hope that the program succeeds. It seems to be going well thus far from what I can gather through my colleagues. So I thank you for your continued prayers for us as a school, and I would ask you to continue with that. I have a couple different news items that I would like to talk to you about this week, and the first one is about Michigan voter ID law. Now, these voter ID laws have been going up, um, or have been at least talked about quite a bit this year, 
after the 2020 election and Georgia just passed one and it caused a great deal of controversy and other states have followed suit and Michigan wants to do the same to ensure election integrity. Yes, good morning. Republicans say that the proposed legislation makes it easier for people to vote. On the other side, Democrats say it does just the opposite, and they call it a voter suppression tactic. The intention of these proposals is very clear. It is to make it so that fewer people will vote in elections in Michigan. In future elections, Michigan Senate Republicans would like to see the following rules in place. Voters would be required to submit a photo ID and those unsolicited absentee ballot applications that went out last year from the Secretary of State because of COVID-19, that mass mailing would be prohibited. Also, the hours that people can drop off their ballot at curbside boxes would be restricted. Democrats, like Lieutenant Governor Garland Gilchrist, say the measures piggyback off of the false premise of a rigged 2020 election and that the proposals primarily target people who are low income as well as people of color. The prepaid postage is about basically instituting a poll tax in the state of Michigan because you need to have a stamp, which costs money to be able to vote. That's ridiculous and undemocratic and is a, a, a callback uh, to the Jim Crow South and the, and the poll tax that existed there. Um, again, this is just about how many barriers can they erect in one session in one day. Senate Majority Leader Mike Shirkey, a Republican, tweeted just the opposite, stating, quote, the Michigan Senate GOP is committed to making it easier to vote and harder to cheat, end quote. He says it's about restoring confidence in the election process and giving everyone a voice. Now, here's more on the voter identification issue. The ACOU claims that requiring voter ID is discriminatory in nature, in part because of the because of the costs associated uh, with obtaining an ID that includes the travel, which they say can be burdensome for those who are elderly, the disabled, as well as those who live in rural areas. I want to make a couple comments about this news story. First of all, about the issue in general, and then also about the comments made in the news story, both by Lieutenant Governor Gilchrist and by the news anchor. First of all, I want to say that I need my ID in daily life. I need my ID to go to the bank to get my money. I need my ID if I go to a doctor's appointment. Um, and I need my I needed my ID and my social security number to get the job that I currently have. So this idea that having an ID for voting is somehow an unrealistic expectation is just not an accurate thing. The reality is, if I need ID for all those other things that I mentioned. Why would I not need ID for voting for the leaders of the free world? It just does not make sense. Governor Gilchrist said that it was a racist thing to require voter ID. But basically what you're doing is you are dumbing down people of different races by saying that they can't have ID in order to vote. Because as I've already said... They would need ID to get into their bank accounts. They would need ID to go to the doctor and they would need ID to get jobs. So the only logical reason that I can see for not having voter ID would be so that people that are not actual people or actual citizens could vote. 
because as I said, there are a myriad uh, number of other reasons to need ID. And if you have ID already, then there's nothing to worry about from this legislation. The other thing that I want to mention is that the news anchor mentioned that ID would be a problem because of travel, um, because people with disabilities would have a difficulty obtaining an ID. And I have to take umbrage with this because as someone who has a fairly uh, significant physical disability, I have had a Michigan state ID as a part of my identification in my wallet for the last 24 years since I turned 18. So this idea that disabled people should not be required to have ID because it's so difficult is not going to hold water. I, I'm sure that I needed ID when I applied for disability. They needed to know who I was. So I have serious concerns about a state or a country that does not want to require voter ID. I think it's very important to know exactly who people are. And I do know there were a lot of stories of chaos caused by the sending of these these ballots for people for mail-in voting. And the reality is that people have gotten multiple mailings from the Secretary of State, um, even some to multiple different addresses that they used to live at. I know of one situation where a friend of mine, I believe it was her driver's license, but she got a driver's license renewal sent to her house where she lives with her husband. And then she had one sent to her parents' house where she lived before she was married. And so they had basically, were basically giving her two opportunities to apply for a driver's license. If the same thing were to happen with voting, then someone who is dishonest could take advantage of that and vote twice. Especially if it's a mail-in system where you're not required to appear and you're not required to provide ID. The reality is that people have uh, reported receiving multiple ballots. Okay, so we can no longer say, we can't just say that that doesn't happen. We can't say that it's not a legitimate concern because it in fact did happen. And so I think we need to take this seriously. It's not that hard to get an ID. When I lost my wallet and I had to get a new Michigan ID, I simply brought a couple pieces of mail with me to the Secretary of State's and I think maybe one other identifying piece of paper to prove who I said I was, and they issued me the ID. It was not complicated at all. And so I think they're just making a mountain out of a molehill on this issue. Because as I said, next time I go to one of those other places where I need my ID to function, where I need my ID to prove myself, if I just said it's 
it's not right for you to require me to have ID. They would not allow me to do the thing that I needed to do because, because it is a perfectly acceptable thing in our society to require ID. The next thing I would like to talk to you about is I was listening to NPR this afternoon and they were talking about embryos. And I found it interesting, specifically the language of this story, because it was dealing with the issue of keeping embryos alive in a lab and whether you should be allowed to do that for more than two weeks. Is it ethical for researchers to keep human embryos alive in their labs longer than 14 days to study them? An influential scientific society says, yes, it could be. This upends a decades-long taboo on studying human embryos in lab dishes for more than two weeks. And it's just one of several controversial recommendations the society made today. NPR health correspondent Rob Stein has been following this and joins us now. Hey, Rob. Hey there, Elsa. So this all comes from an organization called the International Society for Stem Cell Research. Tell us more about this group. Yeah, sure. It's a very highly respected group of scientists whose guidelines influence researchers, regulators, and governments about what should and shouldn't be allowed. And now they're saying the so-called 14-day rule could be scrapped. And that's a big deal because that rule's been an internationally recognized scientific kind of a red line for decades. Mm -hmm. Scientists should not keep human embryos alive in their labs for more than two weeks. And that's to avoid opening a Pandora's box of ethical and moral issues. But Robin Lovell Badge at the Crick Institute in the UK says it's time to rethink that. When you ask, is this ethically bad? Well, you also have to put the opposite. Other ethical issues for not doing research in that period? And I think many of us would argue that there are. In many ways, you could argue it'd be unethical not to do it. So I want you to think about this as you listen to this audio. First of all, they talk about keeping embryos alive. Why is that? Uh, because they can't do research on a dead embryo. And I just started thinking about the fact that they are talking about life. Now, I'm sure they would come back at me and say, well, it's not viable life, so that's the difference. But I... I have to say that it caused me to pause and say that if they were talking about whether it was ethical to keep an embryo alive for more than two weeks in their lab, why are we not talking about whether it's ethical to keep embryos alive in the womb? We are in a society, in a culture, that is looking for bacteria on the planet of Mars so that we can say that there is life there and yet we routinely kill the most vulnerable among us in their mother's wombs. Sure, there's an age of viability tossed around, but even that has been proven wrong at least a couple times because of technology. And the reality is, because of interesting combinations of abortion laws, there are places in the United States where you can abort your baby 
after nine months of pregnancy. What you're seeing in this culture is that we can use the word life if it fits our agenda. Because the agenda of the scientists in that NPR story is, hey, we need to keep these embryos alive so we can continue our research. And if you were to listen to the rest of the clip, and I'll put both of these clips on my the blog post for this podcast so you can watch them for yourself. But if you were to listen to the rest of that clip, you would hear some downright scary things that they want to continue to do with this embryonic research. And it takes living embryos to do it. Now, I don't pretend to understand how all of this works. But I know that the Bible says, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I know that God created mankind and he made them different than the animals. And I also know that God will not be mocked. So all of these people, whether it be people that are openly advocating for abortion or whether it be these scientists who want to do these crazy, uh, ethically sketchy things with the live embryos to continue their research, they are going to stand and make an account before Almighty God for what they do. I'm just going to throw this out here as I end this segment too. One thing that's been running through my mind lately in the past couple of weeks, and it has before too, so it's not a new thought, but why is it that we here in the United States have so many fertility clinics when we are throwing away thousands of unborn children a year. And where are these scientists getting these living embryos for these crazy science experiments to even keep alive in a lab? This is what happens when a nation forgets God. This is what happens when we don't realize that God created man in his own image, for his glory, to do the things that he set forth for him to do. God gave mankind dominion over the earth so that they could take care of the animals and take care of the earth, and he told them to be fruitful and multiply. And he says that his creation of mankind was very good, and he breathed into man the breath of life, and man became a living soul. So I just want you to realize, I think the biggest thing I'm bringing, I want to bring out of this story is the fact that agenda matters. Just like in January when I was talking to you about Planned Parenthood, when abortion was not yet legal, they made a distinction and said, birth control does not kill a living child like abortion would. And then as soon as abortion was legal, they changed their language. 
This is the world in which we live, folks. The language changes to fit the agenda. And the reason that I bring this up is because we are not doing that much better of this with this in the church. The truths of God's word are immutable, they're unchangeable, they cannot be excused away, and yet many of our churches are doing this. So I just want you to have your eyes open and to realize how the devil is using mankind to forward his agenda, to thumb his nose, In the face of God. He hates human life. That's why we have abortion. Because Jesus said the thief comes not but for to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And yet, these scientists in this NPR story are saying, we need to keep these embryos alive for longer than two weeks so we can carry out our experiments. So life matters when it fits the agenda. When it doesn't, you can just throw it away. Something to think about. Today we are continuing our series, Characteristics of the Love of God. We've been going through about four characteristics per podcast episode in this series. I found a blog post that I really resonated with that had 16. So we've been going through these as a series. And so I'm really excited to share this with you once again today. I think it's so important for us to to realize what the love of God is because love is such a buzzword today. It's tossed around by everyone, but we are so confused about what real love is. So as we consider the love of God and the characteristics thereof, hopefully that helps us to get on the right track as far as how we should accept and show love to others. We can only love for real if we have the source of real love within us, and that is God himself. So I'm going to start with our quote of the day. Our quote of the day today comes from Phillips Brooks. One who has been touched by grace will no longer look on those who stray as those evil people or those poor people who need help. Nor must we search for signs of love worthiness. Grace teaches us that God loves because of who God is, not because of who we are. And again, that is Phillips Brooks. And I really like that. God loves because of who he is, not because of who we are. When he talked to the children of Israel about being his chosen people, he said, You are my chosen people, and you have been blessed and given this opportunity, not because you are mighty, but because I love you. And when 
Moses was pleading for the children of Israel and said, Lord, spare them. He wasn't pleading because of what the children of Israel had done great. No, he was pleading because they were a rebellious people who were turning their backs on him. But he said, Lord, because of your reputation, don't turn your back on them. And over and over in the Psalms, the psalmist will remind God of his own promises and his own reputation and say, because of your integrity, save me. And so it's so important for us to understand the character of God. And a big part of that, of course, is his love. So the first thing I want to talk about today in that regard is love does not keep track of wrong. Jesus said, take heed to yourselves. If thy brother trespassed against thee, rebuke him. And if he repent, forgive him. And if he trespassed against thee seven times in a day, and seven times in a day turn again to thee and say, I repent, thou shalt forgive him. And again, that's Luke seventeen three and 4. And, you know, when I look at this, uh, when I'm thinking about me, I'm like, I'm glad that God said that, that my family and friends have to forgive me seven times a day for the same infraction. But then when it comes to forgiving other people, I, I don't want to do that. And, you know, there's an old joke that says some people get hysterical when they get into fights. My wife or my husband, you could substitute either one, gets historical. And that can be a tendency of us as humans to, when we get upset with someone, um, and especially if it's for a repeated offense, we can be like, well, you've done this so many times, or you always do this, or you never do this. Always and never are buzzwords that often creep up in our vocabulary, but they probably shouldn't because they are broad-sweeping generalizations that don't help anyone. And I'm reminded of another verse in the Psalms that says, Lord, if you regarded iniquity, who could stand? And then other verses that says, Blessed is he whose sins are forgiven, whose transgression is covered. Why? Because none of us can stand. Because we all have sinned. We all have transgressions. We all are falling short of the perfection of God, and yet he loves us, he forgives us. And so we should offer the same to our brothers and sisters in Christ, and particularly to our biological family that God has placed us in. I think that can be the most difficult place to find forgiveness, but love does not keep track of wrongs. Love rejoices in the truth. Proverbs twelve seventeen says, He that speaketh truth showeth forth righteousness, but a false witness deceit. I think this is so important uh, because we live in a place, uh, a society today, where we say, I'll embrace my truth, you embrace your truth. And Jesus says, there's one standard of truth. There's a proverb that says, a good name is better than great riches. And how do you have a good reputation? How do you have a good name? You have it by being truthful and honest. 
Now, honesty does not necessarily mean saying everything at once. There is a time and a place to say certain things. I think there is a place for tact. But when something needs to be said, when the truth needs to be shared, we need to share it. And and nowhere is that more important than in sharing with people the truth of the gospel. The gospel is the power of God to everyone that believes. So if we want our family and friends to have the power of God, then we need to share the truth of them, even though they may not receive it gladly. You know, Paul said, knowing the terror of God, we persuade men. We know that there is coming a day when God will come back and judge the world. And we all deserve that judgment, but we can allow Jesus to take it for us if we trust him. So we need to share the truth. We also know that faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. So it's better to be wounded, better to be hurt by a friend who's telling us the truth we need to hear than to be flattered by those who are not speaking the truth to us. So, and I think, incidentally, I think we saw that in the Pilgrim's Progress, didn't we? Because people like evangelists would tell Christian the truth, and then people like worldly wise men would try to dissuade him. And these are the choices that we have to make. Are we going to choose the world, or are we going to choose the truth? And then love protects. First Peter 3, 7 says, Likewise ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor to your wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Now this is not a popular thing that people talk about today in Christian circles. The fact that women are considered the weaker vessel. Paul makes the point in 1 Corinthians when he's talking about the headship of man that among other things, the woman was deceived and the man was not. Now the reality is that the woman came out of man. The woman was made for man as his helper and neither of those things have anything to do with the fall. So the, the structure of leadership did not come because of the fall. But it is significant that God says, the woman was deceived, the man willfully disobeyed me. And that is why the Bible says that by one man sin entered the world, and as in Adam all die. Adam was given the responsibility for the sin of he and his wife. He was in leadership or supposed to be in leadership even at that juncture of the story. And we as believers, we need to protect those around us. And I I really feel as a man that there is an ingrown desire in men to protect the women around them. And I know that that's not something popular that we like to talk about in our culture, but I think it's very real. And it's something that we should not be ashamed of. And we also need to protect others in our lives. 
That's why we're not supposed to do things as Christians that cause other people to stumble. There may be something that I can do as a as a stronger Christian that a, that a weaker Christian shouldn't see me doing. Paul said, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are expedient. There are certain things um, that I avoid because I'm in a position of example to others. Even if some people may say, well, it's permissible for you to do that. But I always try to look at things through the lens of, I'm providing an example for others. And I think that's a good way to look at protecting and being loving in a protective way. And then as we wrap up today, love trusts. And this one comes from Proverbs 31.11. The heart of her husband does safely trust in her so that he shall have no need of spoil. And again, it's using this marriage relationship to show the ultimate earthly example of trust from one person to another. If a woman is a virtuous woman, his her husband will trust her implicitly. And the wife will trust her husband. A man is to give everything for his wife and the wife if that happens, will will be trusting of her husband and the husband who has a virtuous wife who is following close to God will have a husband that trusts her. Marriage is supposed to be an example to the world of Christ and his church. Christ is the head of the church. The church is to do what Christ says to do. And the Bible says that just as Christ is the head of is the head of the church, so man is the head of the woman. It's not it's not something that I'm saying, it's something that God says. I think that's an important thing to point out here. Some people will say, "Well, you're you're just being old-fashioned." No, it's in the scriptures. And it's important that we look at the scriptures as the scriptures. In Titus chapter 2, when it talks about women being keepers at home and loving lovers of their husbands, so that the word of God be not blasphemed, he doesn't take a break from theology in Titus chapter 1 to do Titus chapter 2 about home duties and then go back to theology in Titus chapter 3. No, the whole thing is theology. And so we need to get the blueprint right. And I think that the family relationships are one of the best ways to be an example in these areas. So very quickly, as we wrap up, we covered today, love does not keep track of wrongs, love rejoices in the truth, love protects, and love trusts. I trust that you will find this podcast beneficial and that you will share it with your family and friends. If that is the case, feel free to contact me with the contact information that's about to roll. Have a great week and keep serving the best of masters.
Thank you for listening to today's episode. Your host has been Andrew Gomison, founder of Speaking for Him. For more information on today's show and to leave us comments and voicemails, visit speakingforhim.blogspot.com. You can find Andrew's ministry at speakingforhim.com. That's speaking, the number four, H-I-M. You can also interact with us at facebook.com slash speakingforhim and on Twitter at Speaking for Him. And when you look for us on iTunes and Stitcher, let us know what you think of the podcast by leaving a rating and review.